millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. Today I'm bringing you a Waterloo special. You might wonder why, since I went to town on the battle last year for the 205th anniversary. If you missed it, scroll back through the listings and you'll find that it's all still available on your favourite podcasting platform. But rather than unpick the battle, its strategy, or attempt in vain to find some new angle on it, I wanted to do something more simple and more poignant, to bring you a retelling of the Waterloo story through the eyes of those who fought it. This is not a rehashing of the Voices from the Battlefield series from last year, which emphasised accounts that resonated with the contributors. Instead, it's a bespoke narrative weaving together accounts into a coherent timeline. Full disclosure, the inspiration for this is an excellent book by Christine Hughes-Patrone called Waterloo Witness. I'll release a separate episode tomorrow offering a short review of the book, and I actually interviewed Christine a few weeks back, but we're waiting for the book to be released in the US before that episode goes live. UK-based folks can buy a copy via the Napoleonicist bookstore, the link is in the description uh, to the episode, and you'll not only be able to support the author by purchasing it there, but also independent bookstores and the Napoleonicist. Napoleon Assist patrons, remember that you can get 10% off the title using your Patreon discount code if you buy it directly from Pen and Sword Books. So, let's dive straight in. I want to start, first of all, with Napoleon landing in France. So fast forwarding to that moment when Napoleon comes back from exile in Elba, places himself on French soil with the aim of ousting French King Louis. And I want to read you an extract from Colonel Charles Angelique Francois Houchet, a um, great fan of Napoleon, it it has to be said, as will become very apparent um, from this following extract. Three leagues from Gore, 
the Emperor found a battalion of the 5th Regiment, a company of sappers, in all maybe seven or 800 men stationed to oppose him. He accordingly sent Captain Raoul to parley with the men, but they would not hear him. Napoleon, then alighting from his horse, marched straight for the detachment, followed by his guard, with arms turned outwards. What, my friends, said he, do you not know me? I am your emperor. If there be a soldier among you who is willing to kill his general, his emperor, he may do it. Here I am, placing his hand upon his breast. Long live the emperor, was the answer in an unanimous shout. Now, Houchet was a colonel uh, who commanded the 7th Regiment, and he had actually um, been quite kind of soul distraught um, by Napoleon's exile. Not everyone, of course, was so enamoured, not least the French King Louis, who quite rightly saw the threat that Napoleon posed to his regime. The following are Salt's orders of the day. These are from the 7th of March 1815. Now, Salt, at this point in time, was Minister of War to the French King. And this speaks a lot about the concern with which the return of Napoleon was greeted, at least within the French monarchy, admittedly as much for by a source as Houchet was. Whether the measures adopted at the Congress of Vienna to settle the peace of Europe by removing still further the only man interested in troubling it, have thrown this man upon a desperate enterprise, where the criminal intelligence has flattered him with the support of some traitors. His very partisans know him, and will serve him less from affection than in hate, in defiance of the established government, or from personal motives of ambition or avarice. Free from such passions, Strangers to such calculations, the National Guards will see, with other eyes, the reappearance of that man, who, himself destroying his own institutions, and under the pretense of a regular government, exercising the most arbitrary and despotic power, has sacrificed the population, the riches, the industry, the commerce of France, to the desire of extending his rule beyond all limits, and of destroying all the dynasties of Europe, to establish his own family." That man, who, to say all in one word, gave to the world a new and terrible example of the abuse of power and fortune, when, when ambition is without bounds, passions without check, and talents without virtues. He reappears at a time when France is just recovering its breath under a moderate government, when violent parties, checked by the Charter, are reduced to vain murmurs, and are without power to disturb the public peace, when the nation is about to receive from the king and the chambers the completion of its institutions, when capital, so long shut up, is applied to agriculture, to industry, to foreign commerce, with a development which awaits only the proclamation of the basis adopted by the Congress for the balance and peace of Europe. He returns, and conscription, continental blockade, indefinite war, arbitrary power, public discredit, reappear in his train, preceded by civil war and revenge. Quite clearly, therefore, a damning uh, commentary on what Napoleon represented with his return. Admittedly, as I say, as much biased as those who were great fans of Napoleon. And it is worth saying, of course, that this didn't stop Salt from joining Napoleon and becoming his chief of staff. What, though, of the Allied perspective? 
Well, at this point, it's worth turning to the words of Wellington, who, of course, would play a pivotal role in the whole of the Waterloo story, and particularly of Napoleon's downfall at the Battle of Waterloo itself. Here he writes to Lord Castlereagh on the 12th of March, Castlereagh being back in England and Wellington being at the Congress of Vienna. I have but little to add to my dispatch regarding Bonaparte's invasion of France. The intention is, as soon as it shall be ascertained that he can make head against the king, to assemble three large corps, one in Italy, solely Austrian, which will consist of 150,000 men, one on the Upper Rhine, Austrian, Bavarian, troops of Baden and Wurstenberg, which will eventually consist of 200,000 men, but will at first consist of only the troops of Bavaria, Baden and Württemberg. The third, on the Lower Rhine, consisting of the Prussian Corps of Kleist, the Austrian garrison of Mayence, and other troops on the Mosul, to be joined to the British and Hanoverians in Flanders. Of this corps, they wish me to take the command. The Russian army, 200,000 men, is to be formed in reserve at Würzburg, the remainder of the Prussian army in reserve on the Lower Rhine. The Emperor of Russia seems reconciled to the notion of the old system of managing the great concern in a council consisting of himself, the King of Prussia, and Schwarzenberg. He expressed only a wish that I should be with him, but not a very strong one, and, as I should have neither character nor occupation in such a situation, I should prefer to carry a musket. The Emperor of Austria intimated to me this day that, in case of the movement of his troops became necessary, he could do nothing without the assistance of money from England. I told him I should write to your lordship upon the subject by this courier, and that, in my opinion, the first measure to be adopted was some was one something of the nature of the Treaty of Chaumont, in which he agreed, and afterwards to think of subsidy, if England could grant such a thing. It is my opinion that Bonaparte has acted upon false or no information, and that the king will destroy him without difficulty, and in a short time. If he does not, the affair will be a serious one, and a great and immediate effort must be made, which will doubtless be successful. Wellington then, expressing an admittedly misplaced confidence not only in the French King Louis, but also in the almost inevitability of a successful outcome, which, as we will discuss, was not a foregone conclusion. Now, the response of the French people, by contrast, was somewhat mixed. This next extract comes from Marie-Henri Bale, uh, who published under the pen name Stenthal and wrote in The Life of Napoleon the following extract. The next day, Napoleon reviewed his troops on the parade ground. There again, he was surrounded by the townsfolk. Enthusiasm was at its height, yet it inspired none of the obsequiousness with which people are wont to approach kings. They shouted incessantly beneath his windows and his face, No more conscription, we won't have it any longer, and we want a constitution. Only a brief extract there, but a useful reminder that Napoleon's popularity upon his return was by no means a foregone conclusion and was by no means universal. There were pressures on the man, which may account for the adoption of a very different style of rule, which we saw with his attempts to form a government in 1815. Let's move on, though, from Napoleon's return to start looking at the build-up towards the Waterloo campaign itself. It's worth saying that Napoleon faced a problem. As you heard from Wellington's extract a few moments ago, there was a very clear and very rapidly formed 
Allied plan to overwhelm the man with sheer weight of numbers and to force him from the throne for a second time. Napoleon therefore had to think very rapidly about how he was going to change this strategic situation, which inevitably meant further war. Let's not get into the debate about whether or not Napoleon wanted war and whether or not war was inevitable upon his return. That's a discussion for another day, and I had it at length with individuals over the course of the Waterloo Remembered series. It's worth bearing in mind, though, that whilst all of this preparation for what became the Waterloo Campaign was going on, Napoleon seemed to be past his prime. The following extract is by Jean-Cam Hobhouse, who uh, was a radical and an Englishman who expressed almost kind of fanatical support for the man and wrote in the following terms. This extract relates to a parade of the National Guard. His face was a deadly pale, his jaws overhung, but not so much as I had heard, his lips thin, but partially curled. His hair was of a dark, dusky brown, scattered thinly over his temples. The crown of his head was bald. He was not fat in the upper part of his body, but projected considerably in the abdomen, so much so that his linen appeared beneath his waistcoat. He generally stood, with his hands knit or folded before him, played with his nose, took snuff three or four times, and looked at his watch. He seemed to have a labouring in his chest, sighing or swallowing his spittle. He very seldom smoked, but when he did, smiled, in some sort, agreeably. He went through the whole tedious ceremony with an air of sedate impatience. Napoleon then, sounding, at least in the eyes of that Bonapartist, quite past his best. And it wasn't just the, the Emperor himself who was struggling in terms of quality as we would see over the course of the Waterloo campaign. But he faced a significant challenge in building that army. As has been uh, discussed in, in the past, both on and offline, the army that Napoleon built in 1815 was not of the same quality as had been seen in previous campaigns. So, for example, in relation to the Imperial Guard, there was a lowering of quality of the Guard in order to quite simply fill ranks. Napoleon himself sought to legitimise his return um, with a particularly rousing speech at the École Militaire on the 1st of June. And this extract is quite revealing, in my opinion, in terms of Napoleon's mental state. As emperor, consul, soldier, I owe everything to the people. In prosperity, in adversity, on the battlefield, in council, enthroned in exile, France has been the sole and constant object of my thoughts and actions. Like the King of Athens, I sacrificed myself for my people, in the hope of seeing fulfilled the promise to preserve for France her natural integrity, honour and rights. My own glory, honour and happiness are indistinguishable from those of France. There are two ways, of course, to read that extract. One is that Napoleon was devoting himself to the glory and the betterment of the French nation. The other is that he saw his own prospects and those of France as one and the same thing. In other words, he was France and France was him. And as such, a narcissism was entwined with the notion that Napoleon could not bear to see France reduced to a former state of glory, but that also France was Napoleon's route to glory 
and so the relationship there was potentially quite toxic. Toxic. Whether or not you agree with that interpretation will doubtless depend on whether or not you were a fan of Napoleon. Meanwhile, news of Wellington's appointment to command the troops in Britain was greeted with great, almost joy in fact, certainly elation on the part of the troops. Before Wellington's appointment, um, it's fair to say that there were concerns about the prospect of the Prince of Orange, who had served on Wellington's staff, being the commander of any um, British troops in operations against Napoleon. We now turn to William Wheeler, who speaks just days before the announcement was made that Wellington would command. The Prince of Orange is in command of the army. There can be no doubt but the Prince is well experienced in war, having served on the Duke of Wellington's staff during the Peninsula War, but he is not the man for us. None but Wellington or Hill, or some of the generals who have served with us in the late campaigns, can have our confidence. The Emperor will most assuredly command the French army, and it will require a general of uncommon skill to withstand so powerful a genius. Wellington's the man that must lead us on. He who has baffled the skill of most of the French marshals, and led his army victoriously from the Tagus to the Pyrenees, and then into the heart of France. He is looked to by the remnant of the old Peninsula army. A hundred times a day the question is asked, where is Wellington? Surely we shall not be led to battle by that boy, meaning the prince. Now Wheeler's account is significant because Wheeler was an NCO, a member of the rank and file of the 51st Light Infantry. He'd seen service across the course of the Peninsular War. So he knew the veteran mindset, he knew the soldier's mindset, he was a representative of the soldiers, and as such, his accounts, which come in the form of letters, offer very frank and immediate emotional responses to the contemporary situation. Wellington famously remarked that his army was an infamous one. Certainly there could be no question he would have much rather have had more of his veteran Peninsular War units. But for all that there were concerns about the allegiance, the loyalties, the dependability of the Dutch, Hanoverian and King's German Legion, perhaps to a lesser extent the King's German Legion, but also the King's German Legion troops who were under his command once he was finally appointed to lead the army uh, in, in Belgium. The fact remains that the contribution of the non-British, shall we say, forces was not only absolutely vital but has long been pushed to the sidelines. What, though, was the mood of the army on the eve of war? Well, for that we now have an extract from Captain Edward Kelly. Kelly served in the First Lifeguards, and he's writing here on the 4th of June. This letter is addressed, My dearest love. And in one paragraph he writes, We are in hourly expectation of moving. The French are within 20 miles of us, and very inferior to our cavalry. Bonaparte is said to have been near us a few days ago, and the Prussian army is on our left in great force and most beautiful order. Why bring you that particular quote? Well, I find it quite interesting that there's a premonition there of what was to come. We often talk about how Waterloo was this daring strike that caught the, the Allies completely by surprise, and certainly it did. But at the same time, there was just this inkling that despite having, despite Napoleon having shut the borders, 
they knew what was coming. Um, and as such, the army perhaps might not have been assembled, ready to move, but it sensed that the the climax, if you will, was upon them. On the same date that Kelly was writing that letter and sensing that the campaign might have been about to begin, Napoleon was leaving his soldiers in no doubt of what was awaiting them in the coming days. He issued this rousing uh, proclamation slash speech uh, to his men, which is worth reading in terms of understanding the ability of the guy to get inside the minds of his men, to rouse them on to ever greater feats. Behold the anniversary of Marengo and Friedland, which has twice decided the destinies of Europe. It was then, as at Austerlitz, as at Wagram, that we were too generous to an enemy at our feet. We gave our easy face to the protestations and oaths of those princes to whom we left their thrones. These same princes, having leagued amongst themselves, are now in arms against the independence of France. Let us march to give them the meeting, both they and we are still the same. Soldiers, at Jena, against these same Prussians, we were one against three. At Montmirail, one against six. As many of you have been prisoners amongst the English, relate to your comrades what you suffered in their prisons and hulks. The Saxons, Belgians and Hanoverians, and soldiers of the Confederate of the Rhine, lament that unhappy force which compels them to obey those princes who are the enemies of justice and liberty. They know the insatiable cupidity of this coalition. They know that these princes have already devoured 12 millions of Poles, 12 millions of Italians, a million of Saxons, and 6 millions of Belgians. And thus all the German states of the second order are their next destined prey. Madmen, a moment of prosperity has blinded them. The oppression and humiliation of the French people are beyond their power. If they enter France, they will find in it only their grave. Soldiers, we have marches to make, battles to give, and dangers to incur. But with constancy, discipline, and a resolution to conquer, the victory will be ours, and the glory and liberty of France will be reconquered. For all Frenchmen who have the heart, the moment is come to conquer or die. A very different tone, then, to the conciliatory one that Napoleon had initially put to the um, Allies. But, of course, he's speaking to rouse his men, so he's going to emphasise the sort of the glory aspects. But, for anybody who questions, was Napoleon quite happy to play the glory card when it came to war? Well, in 1815 at least, well, there's your answer. Um, Certainly don't seem to be many qualms there. Now, the French army moved across the Belgian border on the 15th of June. It was a daring lunge, essentially down the axis between the two Allied armies. So on the one hand, you had the Anglo-Dutch army under Wellington, and on the other, uh, the Prussian force under Blücher. And essentially, there's this rift between the two of them, which Napoleon seeks to exploit in order to push the two apart. Why try and do that? Well, it's a divide-and-conquer strategy. Napoleon knew that on his own he was outnumbered by the combined might of the Anglo-Dutch and Prussian forces. But if he could push one at arm's length and then deal with one of the individual forces, whether it was the Anglo-Dutch or whether it was the Prussians, that didn't really matter. If he could achieve that, he held the numerical advantage and could crush them and then turn on the other. It was a daring strategy. It came incredibly close to working. But the crucial factor, or one of the most crucial factors that decided the campaign, was the failure to take the crossroads of Catra Bra, 
on the day slash evening of the 15th of June. We now turn to Lefebvre de Mouet, who was charged with the task of uh, taking the crossroads by Ney. He's writing here to Ney, uh, the Prince of Moscova, as he addresses him, and he begins, My Lord, when we reached Fresnay, in accordance with your orders, we found it occupied by a regiment of Nassau infantry, some 1,500 men, and eight guns. As they observed that we were manoeuvring to turn them, they retired from the village, where we had practically enveloped them with our squadrons. It's worth saying that uh, de Moet was a cavalry commander. General Colbert, with the Lance of the Guard, reached within musket shot of Catrebrow on the high road, but as the ground was difficult and the enemy fell back for support to the Bossu wood, keeping up a vigorous fire from the eight guns, it was impossible for us to carry it. The troops which were found at Frasnay had not advanced this morning and were not engaged at Gozeline. They are under the orders of Lord Wellington and appear to be retiring towards Nivelle. They set light to a beacon at Catrebrow, fired their guns a great deal. None of the troops who fought this morning at Gozeli have passed this way. They march towards Fleurus. The peasants can give no information about a large assembly of troops in this neighbourhood, only that there is a park of artillery at Tubiz, composed of 100 ammunition wagons and 12 guns. They say that the Belgian army is in the neighbourhood of Mons, and that the headquarters of the Prince of Orange is at Bren le Comte. We took about 15 prisoners, and we had 10 men killed and wounded. Tomorrow at daybreak, if it is possible, I shall send a reconnoitring party to Catrebrow, so as to occupy that place, for I think the Nassau troops have left it. How very wrong he was. Because, of course, over that night, the troops under the command, well, from the brigade of Saxe Weimar, made a very crucial decision. They didn't abandon the crossroads. And this is a significant disobeying of orders by Wellington because the stock order was to, as the um, as this extract attests to, was to concentrate on Nivelle, i.e. to unmask the Catrebrow crossroads. Very sensibly, the focus was placed on remaining at Catrebrow, and that was key because it meant that on that first day, by not allowing the French to take that crossroads, it had facilitated Wellington and Blücher to remain within contact of one, with one another, and as such, it prevented Napoleon from achieving his divide-and-conquer strategy. Had Catrebrow been taken on that first day, Napoleon's foot would have been in the gap, if you will, between Wellington and Blücher, prizing the two forces apart. As it was, over the course of the 16th, the two were able to remain within in contact with one another, which turned out to be crucial for how the rest of the campaign unfolded. We now, of course, turn to the events of the 16th of June and the twin battles of Catrebrow and Ligny. I'm not going to give you a detailed breakdown of either event, that's not really the purpose of this extract, but the, the, the strategy for both sides over the course of that day, well, for Napoleon it was a continuation of what he'd already attempted to achieve on the 15th, i.e. this was the sort of fruition, if you will, of the first day's marching. Having the Prussian force concentrate at Ligny meant that he had a force within striking distance, and so the plan was hold off Wellington's force at Catrebrow, take the crossroads if at all possible, achieve that cutting of communications, but also crush the Prussians at Ligny so that then the following day Napoleon could descend on Wellington and crush his force. 
So far then, the plan sort of seemed to be working. But over the course of what was effectively a bloodbath on the 16th of June, the campaign-changing victory eluded Napoleon. Ligny was a slogging match. It was a classic Napoleonic battle in terms of pinning and wearing the enemy down with artillery fire and then striking at the opportune moment. And it's important to acknowledge that this was Napoleon's last victory. To give you a bit of a sense of just how close Napoleon came to crushing the Prussian army, I now have an extract from Neisenau, who was the chief of staff of the Prussian army. The issue seemed to depend on the arrival of the English troops. And this is significant because, of course, for all that people talk about how Wellington was saved at Waterloo, the point is that this was always the plan, that in the case of Catrebras, what Wellington really wanted to do was contain Ney, who was facing him at Catrebras, and then send reinforcements to support Blücher. That obviously didn't transpire because of the fierceness of the fighting at Catrebras, and so what we see at Waterloo, with the Prussians arriving to support Wellington, is the reversal of that as a pre-arranged agreement that Wellington would stand and fight at Waterloo on the understanding that the Prussians were coming. Had he received word that the Prussians were not coming over the course of the 17th, he would not have stood and fought at Waterloo. So there's no question of being saved by the Prussians, but rather that this is the Allied strategy coming to fruition. So to return to Neisenau, the issue seemed to depend on the arrival of the English troops or on that of the 4th Corps of the Prussian army. In fact, the arrival of this last division would have afforded the Field Marshal the means of making immediately on the right wing an attack, from which great success might be expected. But news arrived that the English division destined to support us was violently attacked by a corps of the French army, and that it was with great difficulty it had maintained itself in its position at Catrebras. The 4th Corps of the army did not appear, so that we were forced to maintain alone the contest with an enemy greatly superior in numbers. The evening was already much advanced, and the combat about Ligny continued with the same fury and the same equality of success. We invoked, but in vain, the arrival of those succours which were so necessary. The danger became every hour more and more urgent. All the divisions were engaged, or had already been so, and there was not any corps at hand able to support them. Suddenly, a division of the enemy's infantry, which, by favour of the knight, had made a circuit round the village without being observed, at the same time that some regiments of Serassiers had forced the passage on the other side, took in the rear the main body of our army, which was posted behind the houses. This surprise on the part of the enemy was decisive, especially at the moment when our cavalry, also posted on the height behind the village, was repulsed by the enemy cavalry in repeated attacks. Our infantry, posted behind Ligny, though forced to retreat, did not suffer itself to be discouraged, either by being surprised by the enemy in the darkness, a circumstance which exaggerates in the mind of the man the dangers to which is exposed, or by the idea of seeing itself surrounded on all sides. Formed in masses, it coolly repulsed all the attacks of the cavalry, and retreated in good order upon the heights, whence it continued its retrograde movement upon Tilly. In consequence of the sudden eruption of the enemy's cavalry, several of our cannons, in their precipitate retreat, had taken directions which led them to defiles, in which they necessarily fell into disorder. In this manner, fifteen pieces fell into the hands of the enemy. At the distance of a quarter of a league from the field of battle, the army formed again. The enemy did not venture to pursue it. 
Now that was ultimately absolutely key in terms of how the Waterloo campaign unfolded. Had Napoleon followed up vigorously over the course of that night, he would have maintained the contact and therefore not have sent Grouchy off on what was effectively a wild goose chase searching for the Prussian forces because, you know, he would have had that means of communication from the, the cavalry scouts. Now, admittedly, the reason that Napoleon didn't follow up vigorously was because the Prussians were not broken. You've heard that from Eisenhower, admittedly biased, but the, the accounts tally. Um, but nonetheless, the failure to maintain any contact made this the moment at which Napoleon lost the campaign for the final time. Had he been able to pursue the Prussians more vigorously, then he could have prevented, potentially, Blücher from marching to support Wellington. The failure to do so left the Waterloo campaign wide open for anybody to gain an advantage in. I want to stay with the Prussians for a moment and read you an account from Captain von Reuter. Von Reuter commanded Prussian artillery and his account relates to what was happening at 8pm at Ligny, so the, the point at which things were really starting to fall apart for the Prussians having been worn down by French attacks and cannon fire all day. He begins his account by talking about how he'd just gone to replenish his ammunition wagons and limber boxes. Um, we had, however, he states, hardly reached the crest of the hill when the enemy issued from the village of Ligny in overpowering numbers and compelled all our troops, which were there with us, to fall back. The moment was carried with complete steadiness and regularity. It was now about 8 o'clock p.m. and the growing darkness was increased by the heavy storm clouds which began to settle all round us. My battery, in order to avoid capture, had, of course, to conform to this general movement. I now noticed that there was an excellent artillery position about 1,500 paces behind the village of Brie, close to where the Roman road intersects the road to Catrebras. I made for this point with all haste, so that I might there place my guns and cover, with their fire, the retreat of my comrades of the other arms. A hollow leading to Saint-Bref delayed my progress some minutes. At length I got over this obstacle and attained my goal, but just as I was giving the word, action rear, von Persch's infantry brigade began to debouche from Brie. The general saw in an instant what he took for a selfish and cowardly movement on my part, dashed his spurs into his horse, and galloped up to me, nearly beside himself with passion, and shouting, My God, everything is going to the devil. Truly, sir, I said, matters are not looking very rosy, but the 12-pounder battery number 6 has simply come here to get into a position from whence it thinks it may be able to check the enemy's advance. That, then, is a very brave conduct on your part, answered the general, at once mollified. Cling to the position at all hazards. It is of the greatest importance. I will collect a few troops to form an escort for your guns. While this short but animated discussion had been going on, his brigade had come up close to where we were. He formed it up to cover us and sent everyone who was mounted to collect all retreating troops, in the neighbourhood for the same purpose, while, as they came up, he called to them, Soldiers, there stand your guns. Are you not Prussians? During the time that sort of rearguard was thus formed, the battery had opened fire on the enemy's cavalry, which was coming up rather cautiously, and had forced them to fall back again. Later on, a six-pound field battery and half a horse artillery battery came up and joined us. The fight then became stationary, and as the darkness came on, fighting gradually ceased on both sides. That gives you a sense then of why the follow-up was not um, 
vigorous on the part of the French because ultimately the Prussians were able to demonstrate that they still had teeth. In fact, you could make the argument that von Reuter's actions potentially saved the entire campaign, albeit unbeknownst to him. Let us turn for a moment then to events at Quatre Bras, where a very different kind of battle was unfolding. Quatre Bras was a case of holding the French at arm's length, or at least the plan was to hold the French at arm's length, and then send troops to support uh, Blücher. But Wellington's plan was never able to be brought into fruition for the simple reason that the French made such good progress. Now, I've talked at length about the reasons why the French delay the attack, but ultimately that delay is really quite crucial. And what you get from the following extracts is a sense of the pell-mell nature of Catra and the way in which troops are fed into this fight piece by piece in order to desperately plug gaps in the Anglo-Dutch line and to fend off the French from making as much headway as they were on the cusp of, of achieving. This next extract is from Captain William Burney. He's from the 1st Battalion, 44th Regiment. He writes, The regiment reached Catrebras about one or two o'clock, halting and ordered to cook. The Duke of Brunswick with his dragoons lay on one side of the road, the 44th on the other. We could distinctly hear artillery. The Prussians were engaged and several of their wounded passed us, saying it would be warm work in front. They had had enough of it the day before. Presently, fall in 44th, cooking knocked on the head, or was excitement. The brigade advanced under General Dennis Pack. When we reached a rise in the road, we discovered the French army covering the country and the Prussians, they're not in fact Prussians because the Prussians are at Ligny, but never mind, hotly engaged with them at a distance as we advanced down the slope. The French were in line with skirmishers in the fields of Rye, which was about five feet high. We advanced with the light company extended, but finding that the French had the advantage of seeing us and picking off many, Colonel Hamilton called them in, and file firing commenced from each company to clear the rye as we advanced. After several movements, the 44th were detached at double quick to a rising ground where we found the French cavalry had driven our artillerymen from their guns and had possession of, but could not move them as the horses were gone. Many of our artillerymen were shouted under the guns. We were in quarter-distance column, and soon put our men in charge of their guns again. A German regiment then came up, and the 44th rejoined their brigade. Soon afterwards, the division was in line on the plain. The roar of artillery was awful. The French cavalry repeatedly charged. We formed squares. On the third occasion, I was wounded. That gives you a sense of some of the desperation that was underpinning how the battle unfolded as Wellington threw men into the line to deal with the latest crises that had developed over the course of the afternoon, as he waited for his army to gather in sufficient force to be able to ultimately resume the offensive. Lieutenant James Hope of the 92nd Regiment talks about the situation at around about 6pm on the afternoon of the 16th. At this interesting period of the battle, the Brigade of Guards under General Maitland and 3rd Division under Sir Charles Alton arrived to our assistance. Never did an army receive a more seasonable reinforcement than this was to us. The Guards remained in the wood to the right of the farm, and the 3rd Division was ordered to the left of the whole line. As the troops passed us on the road, we cheered them. 
As the troops of the 3rd Division proceeded from Catrabra to their destination, the enemy poured a heavy and destructive fire on them from numerous artillery, placed in battery on the lower parts of the heights of Frasnay. Having received but a very few guns in addition to our original stock, we could but feebly return the tremendous volleys of fire. The French had certainly mistaken the movement of the 3rd Division. They must, I think, entertain the idea that the troops of that division were those who had baffled their cavalry in two different attempts to get possession of the village, for no sooner had that corps cleared Catrabra than the enemy made dispositions to renew the attack on that place. To cover their real design, the enemy opened a tremendous fire from the whole of their artillery on the troops stationed at the farm, and which lasted without intermission till seven o'clock. By this time, the enemy's infantry had approached very close to the village by two separate routes, one column advanced by the highway, the other by the hollow, which runs along the edge of the wood called the Bois de Bossu. The Duke of Wellington, who had all the time been eyeing the French infantry through the clouds of smoke, and was convinced that their object was Catrabra, ordered Colonel Cameron to charge them with his Highlanders. Before the order to charge was given, the enemy had occupied a house of two storeys, which stands on the left of the highway at Charlois, at the distance of 200 yards from the village. On the opposite side of the road, there was a large garden surrounded by a thick thorn hedge, having a little gate on the side nearest the road, and another of a similar size immediately opposite to it. Between the two, there was a gravel walk, about a yard in breadth. On the left of the house, there was another hedge, which the enemy had also taken possession of. The order to charge had scarcely been given when every man in the regiment appeared in front of the bank, and amidst one of the heaviest fires of musketry I ever witnessed, advanced to dislodge the enemy from the house, garden, and hedge. Colonel Cameron, with the right companies of the regiment, and accompanied by General Barnes, advanced by the highway, the other companies making an oblique movement to their right through the whole strength of the regiment against the enemy at the house and garden. The enemy continued to resist the Highlanders for some time with great bravery. Our brave colonel, Cameron, was mortally wounded, close to the garden, and retired from the field, regretted by the whole corps. So that describes the moment that the Anglo-Dutch force began to go on the counter-attack at Catrabra. But ultimately, Catrabra was quite simply a bloody stalemate. Yes, okay, you could call it a strategic victory for Wellington, in that he was able to maintain his communications with uh, Blücher, but neither side uh, did particularly well and losses were roughly even. I'm not going to bring you any accounts of the fighting that took place on the 17th. It's fair to say that the 17th was something of a lull as the Prussians obviously withdrew towards uh, Vavre and then as news reached Wellington at Catrabra of what had happened to the Prussians and then he made a corresponding move north to Waterloo. But it is worth saying that the British cavalry and artillery made a great job of holding the um, the French assaults, but they were helped in part by the fact that Napoleon did not use the morning of the 17th to turn and descend on Wellington whilst he was still at Catrabra. Had French troops arrived earlier then, and had Ney followed up um, his attack from the following day, then it would have been much harder for Wellington to extricate himself from that position. As it was, that wasn't the case, and so we reach the morning of the 18th of June. I'm going to take you to the infamous Breakfast of the Marshals, at which the following was said by Napoleon. There are 90 chances in our favour, 
I tell you, Wellington is a bad general. The English are bad soldiers. We will settle the matter by lunchtime. Salt replied, I sincerely hope so. Of course, the marshals advocated caution in the face of Wellington and Napoleon was rather scornful of them on the basis that he thought they simply feared him because they'd been beaten by him, which is absolutely fair. But that there in itself lay the problem, that they knew Wellington, they knew the nature of the beast they were fighting, and so had reason to be cautious. Now, the story of Waterloo itself has been retold many times, and I don't want to give you a blow-by-blow account of what happened. For that, you can have a listen to uh, what I put together for the Waterloo Remembered series. But what I am going to do is try and give you just some snapshots of the fighting that took place over the course of the day. The start of the battle was delayed. Napoleon would have liked to have started far sooner, perhaps as early as sort of nine o'clock, but wasn't able to do so. It's often said because of the poor weather, but actually letting the ground dry out is something of a myth. And a much bigger problem is that his army was strung out on the line of march and it took much longer to assemble it to begin the assault. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quite famously, the... Uh, the battle opened with a French cannonade and at the same time a descent on the farm of Hougoumont. The fighting at Hougoumont is described in this extract from Lieutenant Colonel Francis Home of the 2nd Battalion 3rd Regiment of Guards. And I do want to emphasise at this point that for all we quite rightly praise those members of the Guards who were at Hougoumont, the majority of the fighting, as Gareth Glover has shown, was actually done by members of the Dutch Army as opposed to the British Guards. But nonetheless, there was a Guards presence. Here is Colonel Francis Holmes's account. The troops had occupied Hougoumont on the evening of the 17th. In the night was an alarm. The light companies of the 2nd Guard Brigade under Colonel MacDonald were sent down there. They were reinforced by the two companies of the 1st Brigade under Lord Saltoon, who occupied the orchard. About 11 o'clock, a battalion of the Nassau troops was sent down as reinforcements to Colonel MacDonald. These, at first, might be about 600 strong, but after the first hour, there was not one of them to be seen. They had all vanished. Other reinforcements were, at intervals, sent down from Sir J. Bing's brigade, until at last the whole of the 3rd Regiment and eight companies of the Coldstream were employed in or near Hougoumont. The whole force employed there at any one time never exceeded 1,200 men. The French, having reformed their troops, came down to the attack, forming what was called a double shield of sharpshooters. 
They got possession of the wood, but were chased out by an attack and charged by the light companies of Colonel MacDonnell. In this, many officers were wounded. Then the Nassau troops gave way and were never seen afterwards, excepting a few stragglers. The French at last compelled our light troop to return into the house, and they followed so close that some got into the courtyard and some killed there. Many were killed at the gate and about it. Nothing had been done by our engineers to put at this point into a state of defence. It formed the most important point in the day's position, and yet at 11 o'clock there was not a single loophole made in the garden wall. At no time was half the advantage taken of it which might have been done. It possessed great capabilities, but the defence of that point was no ways indicated to our engineers. A few picks and irons of the pioneers formed all the tools. With these, a few loopholes were made and the gate reinforced, and this formed all the additional defence of the place. The troops did the rest. It possessed some important advantages for defence. It could not easily be touched by cannon. The wood protected it in front and its flank. They could not bring guns near to bear on it without coming close to the edge of the ridge and exposing themselves to our artillery. This, in a great degree, saved it. Many cannon shot and grape fell in my direction and perforated the walls in every part, but these reasons prevented it from being steady or effective. About half past one, some shot or shells falling amid the stables of the chateau set them and the straw bales on fire. It burst out in an instant in every quarter with an amazing flame and smoke. The confusion at the time was great, and many men burned to death or suffocated by the smoke. The Duke of Wellington was at this moment in considerable anxiety. He sent Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton, then a de camp to Sir E. Barnes, to the chateau, with orders to keep it to the last, and if it could not be done from the fire, as to occupy the high ground on the right and rear, and defend it to extremity. Colonel Hamilton delivered these orders to me, and added these words, Colonel Home, the Duke considers the defence of this post of the last consequence to the success of the operations of the day. Do you perfectly understand these orders? I said, perfectly, and you may assure the Duke from me that his orders shall be punctually obeyed. The fire was gradually extinguished, and about half-past two, Colonel Hepburn arriving with some fresh troops, things got again into good order, and after that no very violent attack was made upon this post, but only a sharp firing kept upon it by light troops until about six in the evening, when an attack being made along our whole line, the enemy turned the left of the orchard, and the troops there returned upon, back upon our right. Things did not remain long in this situation, and a general advance from our line won the day, and freed the troops in Hougoumont from the fate which they would have met with from the enemy. In some respects, you could say that that account is quite damaging, because it reinforces many of the misconceptions that we have since kind of absorbed into the Waterloo story. But nonetheless, if you want to read up more on uh, the Defence of Hougoumont, Gareth Glover has done some great work on this, so I strongly recommend his work to you. Moving on with the story of Waterloo, though, and we turn to what was meant to be the main French attack, that of Derlon's corps, um, which is described from two perspectives in the next couple of quotes, uh, from, first of all, an officer, and then from a member of the rank of rank and file. Here is Captain Pierre Charles Douthely. The second brigade of the 1st Division of 1st Corps, commanded by General Bourgeois, were ordered to seize the position of Mont-Saint-Jean, 
which had become the centre of operations. In front of Mont-Saint-Jean, in relation to us, we had a farm which was occupied by the infantry. Its approaches were blocked by carts and ploughs and tree branches, their slender branches being intertwined, and further in front by and further in front was a chevaux de frise, which made the attack difficult. The surrounding hedges were also lined with Scottish sharpshooters and supported by several other regiments placed in ambush. There was also a body of cavalry protected by a formidable battery, which was placed on a concealed height and made this position an excessively fortified one. The second brigade was placed in a hollow, having been formed in column of attack by battalion and began marching at the Pas de Charge, preceded by skirmishers and shouts of joy, but this precipitation and enthusiasm would become fatal in that the soldiers had yet to do a long march to reach the enemy. They were soon tired by the difficulty of moving on land that was greasy and soggy, and which broke the straps of their gaiters, and some even lost their shoes burdened by the amount of mud attached to them, and by the fact that the mud stuck the soles of the shoes to the ground, and because the commands could not be heard, as they were covered by the thousands of repeated shouts and noise from the drums. Soon there was some confusion in the ranks, especially when the head of the column had reached within range of the enemy's fire. Between the column head and the enemy was a deep ravine that we had not seen before, and it was impassable. The column was forced to make a move to the left to skirt the ravine and the embankment by distance of some hundred metres, but the command had not been well understood. Throughout the column, some battalions made a move to the left, while others made a move to the right, which resulted in confusion and wasted time. During this confusion, the enemy made use of every means. A terrible fire burst out upon the column. Bullets, cannonballs and grape shot killed in an instant a third of the men of this brigade. However, we were not weakening, and when we finally closed and assailed their position, the charge was beaten and the pace was not rushed. Repeated a thousand times over were the cries of long live the emperor. We then rushed onto the batteries. So that gives you a sense of the initial movement to assault the ridge. Here, though, is an account from a non-commissioned officer. Around noon, we went to take a position on the plateau of La Belle Alliance, on which we had established a battery of 80 guns. Then we were sent down into the ravine of the same name, and we were assailed by a formidable battery that the English had established during the night in front of ours, and continually fired on us. Soon it was a dreadful duet performed by two batteries composed of nearly 200 guns. Balls, bombs and shells passed whistling over our heads. After half an hour wait, Marshal Ney ordered the attack and to take by storm the English battery. Three rolls of the drum to get the corps ready to march. We were formed up in close column by battalion. I noticed that Adjutant Hubeau, who formed the divisions, an old soldier who made all the campaigns of the Empire, was concerned and extremely pale. Finally, the columns were formed, and General Drouet Durlan, in the middle of his corps, pronounced with a strong, clear voice, It is today that we must conquer or die. An interesting echo there of Napoleon's proclamation. The cry of Long Live the Emperor came from every mouth to answer this short speech, and with shouldered arms, the sound of drums beating the charge, the columns moved against the English guns without firing a single shot. Then the enemy's batteries, which until then had only sent well-aimed ball and shell onto our columns, now decimated them by firing grape shot. Hardly had we gone a hundred steps 
than the commander of our 2nd Battalion, Marine, was mortally wounded. The captain of my company, Duzy, was struck by two bullets, and Adjutant Hubeau and the eagle-bearer, Cross, were killed. Amidst this, the calm and serious voices of our commanders called the only command, closed the ranks. At the second discharge of the English battery, the grenadier's drummer, Le Quante, had his right arm carried off by a round shot. But this courageous man continued to march at our head, beating the charge with the left hand until the loss of blood made him faint. In 1821 I saw him in Paris, where he'd entered the Envelide. The third discharge reduced the leading company of our battalion. The terrible cry of close the ranks was heard again. This cry warded away the terror and despair in our hearts. It produced a completely different effect, inspiring us with courage and the determination to overcome and avenge our dead brothers-in-arms who were killed before our eyes. Famously, their assault was shattered by the charges of the Union and Household Heavy Cavalry Brigades, who, being some of the best cavalry in the world, but famously described as some of the worst lead, then overextended themselves, charged all the way to the French guns, and became cut off by French dragoons and lancers. Effectively, Wellington's heavy cavalry, although having shattered Donon's corps, was out of the fight entirely. Yet there was hope on the horizon, of course, for Wellington as the Prussians began to arrive on the battle, but it took a long time to happen. This next extract is actually from Muffling. Now, Muffling was the Prussian liaison to Wellington's army, and he describes the gradual reinforcement and the way in which that it was deployed in order to support Wellington's dwindling forces. At three o'clock, the Duke's situation became critical, unless the circle of the Prussian army arrived soon. On the receipt of my reports, it was resolved not to await the arrival of the whole of von Bulow's corps on the plateau, but to advance out of the wood as soon as the two 12-pounder batteries arrived. At four o'clock, the field marshal began his cannonade, as well as his advance against Plancenoit, and as the advance guard of the first corps, that's Seiton's corps, had already appeared in the position on the nearest height, I begged Generals Vandeleur and Vivian to hasten immediately with their six regiments of English cavalry to the assistance of the distressed centre, that's the Wellington centre, on account of the arrival of the Prussian Corps. They were no longer wanted on the left wing. He then goes on, almost simultaneously with the movements of these regiments, that is, Vandeleur's and Vivian's hussars, the enemy advanced with infantry against the left wing at Papalo. General Zeiton's advance guard, which I was expecting with the utmost impatience, suddenly turned around and disappeared from the height, just as the enemy took possession of Papalo with his guards. I hastened after this advance guard on the other side of the height, from whence I saw them in full retreat. Now, in essence, the Prussians weren't actually withdrawing, um, but it gives you a sense that at three o'clock, not only was the pressure starting to be applied to Napoleon and the Prussian troops starting to great problems for the French, but also that things were by no means rosy for the Anglo-Dutch army, and that everything still hung in the balance. As the afternoon wore on, the French famously made what seemed to be a futile cavalry attack on the Allied right flank. It's thought now that this was an effort to pin Wellington um, in order to prevent him from preparing for what was meant to be another hammer blow in the same direction that Durlon's corps had, had struck in, using effectively a reformed um, remnants of Durlon's troops. 
that never came because of the pressure that the Prussians were applying to the French right. But nonetheless, the cavalry attacks are well worth relating, um, as the following accounts will do. This first piece comes from Edward Cotton. The fire of the enemy's artillery had been continued with great vigour. It was now increased upon that part of our position, which was between the two high roads. Our squares, which were lying down behind the crest of the ridge and could not be seen by the enemy, were protected in a great degree from the round and grape shot, but not from the shells, which were bestowed upon them most liberally. They sometimes fell among us with great effect. Those missiles may be both seen and heard as they approached, so that by keeping a lookout many lives were saved. The ground too was so saturated with rain that the shells in some instances sunk beneath the surface and bursting through up mud and sand, which was comparatively harmless. The oldest soldier, however, had never witnessed so furious a cannonade. The Duke, writing to Lord Beresford, says, I never saw such a pounding match. The havoc was dreadful in the extreme for some considerable time before the impetuous Ney came on with his grand cavalry attack made by 40 squadrons. On their right, close to La Haissant, were the Serassiers, then the Lancers and the Chasseurs à Cheval of the Imperial Guard. They advanced in lines on echelon, their left reaching nearly to the east, head, east hedge of Hougoumont. As those on the right neared the ridge, their artillery discontinued firing and ours opened with grape and canister and shrapnel shells, which rattled like hail on the steel-clad warriors. But they still pressed on, regardless of our fire, towards the guns, the horses, which had been sent to the rear. Every discharge, the load was usually double, threw them into great disorder, but excited by the trumpets sounding the charge, they rode up to the cannons' mouths, shouting Vive l'Empereur. Our gunners fled to the squares, which were all ranged in checker. The front ones had advanced again, nearly close to the guns. The French, not perceiving the advantage which the squares afforded the gunners, and imagining that they had captured the guns, shouted out in triumph, and then crossed over the ridge. Here they were assailed by a rolling fire from our squares, which were all prepared, the front ranks on the right knee, the next rank at the charge. When the Serassiers had passed over the ridge, they were out of the sight of the Lancers and Chasseurs, who immediately pressed on to share in the contest. Our artillery received them in a similar manner, some of the men rushing back to their guns, and after discharging them at the foe, taking shelter again within the squares or under the guns. The firing produced a much greater effect upon such of the enemy's cavalry as were not protected by the surass and cask. Consequently, their ranks were much more disordered than, with, than were the Serassiers. Still, they pursued their onward course, passed the guns, raised a shout and swept round the squares. Some halted and fired their pistols at the officers in the squares. Others would ride up close and either cut at the bayonet or try to lance the outside files. No sooner had the broken squadrons passed the guns than the gunners were again at their post and the grape rattled upon the retiring house. But frequently before a succeeding round had been discharged, the hostile cavalry were again upon them and compelled them to seek shelter. During the cavalry attacks, those of the enemy were at one time on the Allied position, riding about amongst our squares for three quarters of an hour, all cannonading having ceased between the two high roads. When the enemy's squadrons became broken and disordered, our cavalry, who were kept in hand till the favourable moment, again attacked them and drove them down the slope, often following too far, by which they were burnt by which they burned their fingers and likewise prevented our gunners from keeping up a constant fire. 
Our position was scarcely free from the enemy's cavalry before their numerous artillery began to ply us again with shells and round shot. After the first cavalry charges, our infantry squares, finding the odds in their favour, gained confidence, and it was soon evident they considered the enemy's cavalry attacks as a relief, and far more agreeable than their furious cannonade, which was invariably suspended on their attacking force crowning our ridge. I am confident from what I saw and heard, as during as well as after the battle, that most of our British infantry would rather, when in squares, have the enemy's cavalry among them than remain exposed to the fire of artillery. The first foot guards had the enemy's cavalry on every side of their square several times and beat them off. Our squares often wheeled up into line to make their fire more destructive. On this, the cuirassiers would suddenly wheel round to charge, but our infantry were instantly in square and literally indulged in laughter at the disappointment and discomfiture of their gallant opponents. Throughout the day, our squares presented a serried, a serried line of bristling bayonets, through which our enemy's cavalry could not break. Had the enemy made their attacks throughout with infantry and cavalry combined, the result must have been much more destructive. For although squares are the best possible formation against cavalry, there can be nothing worse to opposite infantry. I am not aware of any parallel to the extraordinary scene of warfare now going forward. Most of our infantry were in squares, and the enemy's cavalry of every description riding about among them, as if they had been our own, from which, but for their armour and uniforms, they might have been mistaken. That account gives you a sense of the futility of what the French were trying to achieve by charging the Allied squares, but let's now hear from the French perspective. The farm of Hougoumont was attacked and was defended by the English. The French infantry was placed entirely at this farm and at La Saint Alliance. He actually means La Haye Saint. He's got the two, La Belle Alliance and La Haye Saint, confused. But anyway, the French infantry was placed entirely at this farm and at La Haye Saint and renewed their attacks. The heavy cavalry division of Lertier, formed in close columns with the men dismounted, stood behind the infantry. They charged the English, who evacuated their positions. At the same time, the English artillery sent some round shot, which fell on our infantry and on the division of Lertier causing confusion among the men and horses. It was decided to charge the line with the cavalry. The English had time to prepare their dispositions for the attack. We moved to the offensive in front of our infantry, which then formed a line between the farms with no other dispositions. This was a great fault. The squadron formed the head of column of Letier's division and advanced against the infantry, followed by the other squadrons. Due to the distance separating us from the English, it permitted to perform the movement to form a square to receive the charge. The squares resolutely awaited the cavalry and were determined to hold their fire until point-blank range. The infantry's fire had a powerful impact on the cavalry's morale, which was greater than its physical impact on the cavalry, which was never better demonstrated. The coolness of the British infantry was all the more remarkable for the absence of the fuselage, fusillade, which we were expecting, and that, to our great surprise, we did not receive, which disconcerted our men. They were then seized with the thought that they were going to be received by a fire that would be much more murderous from being at point-blank range, and probably to escape such a fire the first squadron wheeled to the right, and thus decided a similar movement by all the following squadrons. The charge failed and none of the squadrons rallied till they reached the embattled farm of La Haysant, which, being still occupied by the British, fired upon us, wounded and killed many in an instant. 
Among those who were wounded were General Lertier, who commanded the division, General Piquet, who commanded the brigade, Colonel Leopold, who commanded the 7th Regiment of Dragoons, and two squadron commanders of the same regiment. The command of the 7th Regiment of Dragoons passed to squadron commander Letton at the moment they rallied behind St. Alliance, La Haye Saint. Following this event, the Emperor, informed of the danger to our position, ordered the farm of La Haye Saint uh, was to be attacked and taken. Ney was placed at the head of the infantry and marched to this post and captured it. That therefore gives you a different sense of the impact of the um, resoluteness, if you will, of the Allied squares. Nonetheless, and notwithstanding what we've just heard, the French attacks were beginning to have an effect, and there were clear signs that the whole day was starting to take its toll on the Allied line. We're now going to hear from the famous General Maitland, who of course commanded the Guards Brigade at Waterloo. Here he's describing the situation surrounding Ney's attack and the attack of the Imperial Guard. The cannonade which began the action was very heavy and we suffered in our squares from this with the greatest steadiness. Afterwards, the French cavalry advanced against us in immense masses, one after another attempting with the greatest gallantry to break our squares. They halted at a certain distance, sent forward some of their men to fire with pistols at us, but ours were too steady to return their fire and preserved it for their charge, which was continually fruitless. They then assailed the 3rd Battalion Square, in which I was, and which was the most advanced, with a square of infantry. Finding their fire galling and relying on the steadiness of the men, I pushed forward against them in spite of the cavalry and drove them down the hill. Here the 3rd Battalion halted, still in square, in front of the whole line. The enemy poured on us a heavy fire with its artillery, mode of passage two or three times through the faces of our square, while the cavalry were prepared on our right to take advantage of the least disorder. The coolness and rapidity with which our ranks were closed left him no opportunity with which he thought proper to avail himself. Finding the fire too deadly to be long maintained and that I was too far in front of the line, I caused the square to retreat up the hill about 40 yards, which it did with the greatest good order. It was at this period that Napoleon made his last effort against our centre and advanced with masses of infantry supported by cavalry and a blaze of artillery. At the command of the Duke of Wellington, our two squares formed in line of four deep. Napoleon himself led his Imperial Guard against us. In actual fact, he didn't, but, you know. The moment they appeared, that is the Imperial Guard, and began to form about 20 yards in our front, we poured in the most deadly fire that perhaps ever was witnessed, as the field of battle abundantly testified the following day. The Imperial Guard retreated, the whole of our line advanced, and the rest on the part of the enemy was all flight. There are of course misconceptions within um, Maitland's account but that nonetheless gives you an indication that the cracks were perhaps starting to show. Maitland might have been able to see off the um, assault by that battalion but nonetheless the artillery fire, the combined arms approach where it was used and certainly the pressure was stretching the army incredibly thinly. But by turning to Maitland, we have actually run ahead in the Waterloo story, because before dealing with the assault of the Imperial Guard, it's vitally important not to forget the vital role that the Prussians were playing in the course of the battle. For as the afternoon went on, the pressure that the Prussians were applying to Napoleon's right flank was increasingly taking its toll. 
We now have an account from the French perspective on the vicious fighting that went on in and around Plance Noir. This comes from General Petit. The enemy, he's referring to the Prussians, however, made much progress on our right, which was singularly overwhelmed. The young guard, who had been sent at two o'clock, and having been forced into a retrograde movement from the village of Plancenois, the 2nd Regiment of Chasseurs and the 2nd Regiment of Grenadiers were ordered to detach a battalion and enter the village. The enemy was immediately chased out with great loss. We pursued them with bayonets up on the hill. The Chasseurs and Grenadiers marched right up to the Prussian batteries, which were for a time abandoned. The movement was effected at 6pm. During this movement, the 1st Grenadier Regiment was formed in two squares, one per battalion. The first was on the right of the roadway, facing the enemy, on an elevated position overlooking the small path that opens out into a highway and that leads to Plancenois. We sent some men with the adjutant major to the far right of the village to observe the enemy that was there in force. So that's one account and shows how the fighting ebbs and flows and the, that famously a battalion of the guard was sent in to force out the Prussians from the village at a quite crucial moment in the battle. Nonetheless, the Prussians were able to make headway, as will now become apparent from this extract. For the Prussian perspective on the battle at Waterloo, we now turn once again to Neisenau. Towards six o'clock in the evening, we received the news that General Thielmann, with the Third Corps, were attacked near Vav by a very considerable corps of the enemy that's famously Grouchy, and that they were already disputing the possession of the town. The field marshal, however, did not suffer himself to be disturbed by this news, and it was on the spot where he was, and nowhere else, that the affair was to be decided. A conflict continually supported by the same obstinacy, and kept up by fresh troops, could alone ensure the victory, and if it were to be obtained here, any reverse sustained near Vav was of little consequence. The columns, therefore, continued their movements, it was half an hour past seven, and the issue of the battle was still uncertain. The whole of the 4th Corps, and a part of the 2nd under General Persh, had successively come up. The French troops fought with desperate fury. However, some uncertainty was perceived in their movements, and it was observed that some pieces of cannon were retreating. At this moment, the first column of the Corps of General Zeithen arrived on the points of the attack, near the village of Smoane, on the enemy's right flank, and instantly charged. This moment decided the defeat of the enemy. His right wing was broken in three places. He abandoned his positions. Our troops rushed forward at the Pas de Charge, and attacked him on all sides, while at the same time, the whole English line advanced. Whilst the Prussians were coming into play on Napoleon's right flank, the situation was still dire at the centre of the Anglo-Dutch army. The farm of La Haysant fell late in the afternoon, having been gallantly defended by troops of the King's German Legion. This next extract is from Friedrich Lindau, who describes the desperate nature of the fighting as the troops began to run out of ammunition. The farm was stormed again and my captain ordered me to remain by the gateway. This time the battle lasted longer as ever more columns arrived. We soon ran out of cartridges, so that as, so that as soon as one of our men fell, we immediately went through his pockets. At the same time, Major Baring, who constantly rode round the farm, was reassuring us that fresh ammunition would soon arrive. Soon afterwards, I got a bullet through the back of my head, which I informed my captain about, 
as he stood above me on the platform. He ordered me to go back. No, I answered. As long as I can stand, I stay at my post. Meanwhile, I undid my scarf, wet it with rum, and asked one of my comrades to pour rum into the wound and tie the scarf round my head. I attached my hat firmly to my pack and reloaded my rifle. Soon after that, I heard a cry at the door of the barn. The enemy mean to get through here. I went there and had scarcely fired a few shots down into the barn when I noticed thick smoke under the beam. Major Baring and Sergeant Rees from Tundern and Pope immediately hurried in with kettles that they filled at a pond to empty at to empty in the barn. The loopholes behind us were now weakly manned, and the French maintained heavy fire on us through them. But it became weaker, and I and some of my comrades went back in front of the loopholes. Then, just as I had fired, a Frenchman seized my rifle to snatch it away. I said to my neighbour, Look, the dog has seized my rifle. Wait, he said, I have a bullet. And at once the Frenchman fell. At the same moment, another seized my rifle, but my next man on the right stabbed him in the face. I needed to draw my rifle back to load it, but a mass of bullets flew by me, rattling on the stone of the wall. One took the worsted tuft from my shoulder, another shattered the cock of my rifle. I looked for another, there were plenty around, and took my place again at my loophole. I had soon fired my shots though, and before I could shoot again, I had to search the pockets of my fallen comrades for ammunition, but they were mostly empty by now. Thus our fire became weaker, and the pressure of the French grew. Inevitably, under such a determined assault and running out of ammunition eventually, the farm had to be abandoned. That process is now related by Lieutenant Graham. We had all to pass through a narrow passage. We wanted to halt the men and make one more charge, but it was impossible. The fellows were firing down the passage. An officer of our company called to me, Take care, but I was too busy stopping the men, and answered, Never mind, let the blackguard fire. He, he's referring to a Frenchman here, was about five yards off and levelling his piece just at me when this officer stabbed him in the mouth and out through his neck. He fell immediately. But now they flocked him. This officer got two shots and ran into a room where he lay behind a bed all the time they had possession of the house. Sometimes the room was full of them and some wounded soldiers of ours who lay there and cried out, Pardon, was shot. The monster saying, Take that for the fine defence you have made. An officer and four men came first in. The officer got me by the collar and said to his men, C'est ce coquin. Immediately the fellows had their bayonets down and made a dead stick at me, which I parried with my sword, the officer always running about and then coming at me again, shaking me by the collar, but they all looked so frightened and pale as ashes, I thought, you shan't keep me, and I bolted off through the lobby. They fired two shots at me and cried, coquin but did not follow me. I rejoined the remnant of my regiment. But with the farm of La Haysant having fallen, it opened the way for Napoleon's last big gamble, a do-or-die assault by the French Imperial Guard. The first extract I want to bring you relating the Guard's attack is from the First Foot Guards, the sort of classic interpretation that we have of guard-on-guard -guard action. Powell talks about the movement that had been ordered by Wellington for the Brigade of Guards, which he says, brought the brigade precisely on the spot the Emperor had chosen for his attack. There ran along this part of the position a cart road, on one side of which was a ditch and bank, and in an under which the brigade sheltered themselves during the cannonade, which might have lasted three quarters of an hour. Without the protection of this bank, 
every creature must have perished. The Emperor probably calculated on this effect, for suddenly the firing ceased, and as the smoke cleared away, a most superb sight opened upon us. A close column of grenadiers of the middle guard, about 6,000 strong, led, as we have since heard, by Marshal Ney, were seen ascending the rise au pas de charge, shouting Vive l'Empereur. They continued to advance till within 50 or 60 paces of our front, when the brigade were ordered to stand up. Whether it was from the sudden appearance of a corps so near them, which must have seemed as starting out of the ground, or the tremendously heavy weight of fire we threw into them, Lagarde, who had never before failed in an attack, suddenly stopped. Those who, from a distance and more on the flank, could see the affair, tell us that the effect of our fire seemed to force the head of the column bodily backwards. In less than a minute, above 300 were down. They now wavered, and several of the rear divisions began to draw out as if to deploy, whilst some of the men in their rear, beginning to fire over the heads of those in front, was so evident proof of their confusion that Lord Saltoon hallowed out, Now's the time, my boys. Immediately the brigade sprang forward. Lagarde turned and gave us little opportunity of trying the steel. We charged down the hill till we had passed the end of the orchard of Hougamont, when our right flank became exposed to another heavy column, as we afterwards understood the chasseurs of the guard, who were advancing in support of the former column. This circumstance, besides our charge was isolated, obliged the brigade to retire towards their original position. That, of course, is the classic version of what happened. But as Gareth Glover has argued, actually the credit for destroying the attack by the Imperial Guard should be accredited to the Allies wholesale because different elements of the attack fell on different parts of the line and actually meant that other battalions besides the Guards, including the Dutch troops, were involved in seeing it off. This next account is from the 52nd uh, and is from Lieutenant Colonel John Cross. The 52nd halted in two lines, ten yards behind the crossroad, where the ground sloped towards our position. The 52nd wheeled, the left company nearly a quarter of a circle to the left, and formed. The remainder were formed into two lines, not four deep. A strong company of the 52nd was sent to skirmish in front and to fire into the Imperial Column. At this moment, General Adam came to the 52nd from the 71st, and desired the 52nd to move on. The 52nd still moved on, passing the entire front of Bing's brigade of British guards, who were stationary and not firing, about 300 yards or so to their front, and forming possibly a right angle or perhaps an obtuse angle with the line of the guards. At the moment the 52nd commenced the movement, Lord Hill was near the British guards commanded by Maitland, and no movement on their part had taken place. Therefore it is imagined when the 52nd commenced the movement, they were shortly followed by the 71st and the whole of General Clinton's division. The Imperial troops saw their flank and rear were menaced by a mass of troops marching on their flank. They halted. The 52nd, in the meantime, had proceeded within a short distance of the rising ground on which the French were formed, when a body of British cavalry were perceived in full speed approaching the front of the left company of the 52nd. The officers of the company gave the order to fire, supposing that they had come from the enemy's column. The three adjoining companies wheeled back to form square. The battalion at this time was under a heavy fire from the Imperial Guard, and the regiment was halted for a few moments to enable the three companies to rectify their line. At this moment, while the three companies were forming up, the Duke was close to the rear and said, 
Well, never mind. Go on, go on. This halt brought the 71st close on the right of the 52nd. The 52nd then advanced at full speed, and the greater part of the French gave way in confusion. So you can see there how everybody effectively was vying for the glory of defeating Napoleon's fabled Imperial Guard, and so you get very conflicting accounts over what actually happened. And so our Waterloo story is almost at an end, with the Imperial Guard broken and the Prussians applying pressure on Plans Noir breaking through and threatening to cut off the French force, the French army collapsed um, and fled south. This inevitably was followed up on all sides. And this following account comes from 2nd Lieutenant Richard Cox Eyre of the 2nd Battalion 95th, as he relates the pursuit of the French, at least in a limited way, and the subsequent um, effect that that had for him personally. After a conflict which I cannot attempt to describe to you, the French Imperial Guards gave way, and their whole force were thrown into the utmost confusion. We followed them, shouting and keeping up a tremendous fire of musketry, shells and rockets, about seven miles, during which pursuit a scene presented itself that I think head itself could not surpass. About dusk we came up to two villages, which our rockets had set fire to. Here the French thought they may easily check our pursuit, and with that, I and with that idea brought about their whole artillery, which they commenced loading with grape and round shot, and poured them in on us from all quarters, their infantry likewise keeping up a destructive fire of musketry. If anything in the world would have dampened the ardour of British troops, this would have done it, but their confidence in their general, and encouraged as they were by success, the devil himself would not have stopped them. They continued their hussars, and dashed through everything that opposed them. We now came to an immense hill, where we found the consternation of the routed enemy so great that all classes of them, dragoons, infantry and artillery, were mixed in one immense and confused mass. The greater part of the infantry threw down their packs and arms to be able to mount the hill. They were endeavouring to get over. Those we came up to ran into us as prisoners. Our lines then shortened pace to allow our cavalry and light troops to make a flank movement and get round the other side of the hill. By this we succeeded in taking a great number of prisoners, a great part of their artillery, and the whole of their provision and ammunition wagons. It, however, gave us some hard work, as part of the French army we had cut off fought hard with the idea of joining their, com their companions, who were better at running than themselves. In this, however, they were foiled, and at last, about half-past nine at night, which gloriously concluded a well and hard-fought day, I was fortunate enough to get wounded. A musket ball entered just below the wrist in my left hand, the bones leading to my thumb and forefinger are a good deal smashed. The ball is still in my hand. Some leather and velvet, which was driven in from my sleeve and glove, have already been extracted, but there is too much inflammation to allow them to cut the ball out. I am, however, assured that there is no danger of losing the hand, and that I shall in great measure recover the use of it. Whilst Cox Air may have considered the wound to be a badge of honour, the fact remains that huge numbers had died over the course not only of the Battle of Waterloo, but of the Waterloo campaign. Wellington himself, of course, having met Blücher at La Belle Alliance, Blücher remarking, mein lieber camarade, quelle affaire, was forced to return. Wellington, of course, had met Blücher at La Belle Alliance, where the two famously shook hands, with Blücher supposedly remarking, mein lieber camarade, quelle affaire. As the Prussians continued the pursuit over the course of the night, 
Wellington returned to his headquarters at Waterloo, in the process riding over the battlefield, strewn with the dead and dying, both human and horse. It was something that moved him deeply and led to him uh, being genuinely shaken at the human cost. There's a sense of almost shell shock in the way in which he described the um, battle in the days afterwards. And it's worth reflecting for a moment on the human cost. After the death of his aide-de-camp, Gordon, Wellington wrote to the Earl of Aberdeen. He actually writes on the following day, the 19th of June, in a letter that is practically dripping with emotion. You will readily give credit to the existence of the extreme grief with which I announce to you the death of your gallant brother. In consequence of a wound received in our great battle of yesterday. He has served me most zealously and usefully for many years, and on many trying occasions, but he had never rendered himself more useful, and had never distinguished himself more than in our late actions. He received the wound which occasioned his death when rallying one of the Brunswick battalions which was shaking a little, and he lived long enough to be informed by myself of the glorious result of our actions, to which he had so much contributed by his active and zealous assistance. I cannot express to you the regret and sorrow with which I look round me and contemplate the loss which I have sustained, particularly in your brother. The glory resulting from such actions, so dearly bought, is no consolation to me, and I cannot suggest it as any to you and his friends, but I hope it may be expected that this last one has been so decisive as that no doubt remains that our exertions and our individual losses will be rewarded by the early attainment of our just object. It is then that the glory of the actions in which our friends and relations have fallen will be some consolation for their loss. Wellington's words offer a poignant reminder of why stories such as those of Waterloo are so important, the human sacrifice. It's very easy for those who have been fortunate enough never to go near a battlefield, to revel in the glory or obsess about the microscopic detail, and in the process, forget the human element. Accounts such as those that you've heard in this episode remind us of the human face of war, open our eyes to the suffering, and shatter the myth of war being glorious. So, over the course of the next few days, I hope that you will be able to find a moment to pause, to reflect on the sacrifice made by those on all sides, and honour their memory. If you've been inspired to learn more about the accounts of those who served, you can find a dedicated book list in the Napoleonicist bookstore. The link is in the description. It's by no means exhaustive, but it will hopefully give you some places to start in terms of finding some key eyewitness accounts of the Napoleonic Wars. And by purchasing via that link, you'll be supporting both independent bookstores and the podcast as opposed to Amazon. So everybody wins. As ever, a big shout out to my patrons, starting with my commander patron, Ger Brown, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Alex Churchill, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, James Bevan, Jamie Kingston, Jim Deary, John Haynes, Lucy Tatner, Rob Griffith, and Rory Muir. You can find out more about joining them on Patreon via the link in the description. 
Join me tomorrow when I'll be bringing you an exclusive review on an excellent new publication, Christine Hughes-Petrone's Waterloo Witness, and giving you a heads up on some decent books to buy relating to Waterloo. And then, on the 18th, I've got a special episode for you marking the release of my first book. Narcissistic, I know, but hey, I'm excited. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.